passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, uh, now we'll jump into God's Word. Uh, great to be in God's Word with you this morning uh, as we continue working our way through 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open up to 2 Samuel chapter 16. That's our passage for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screens or in the Bible app, or there are some Bibles in front of you in the chairs um, there that you can follow along with as well. Now, as you're turning to that text, I just want to kind of open by saying that I'm, I'm really grateful for this text this morning. And that might sound um, a little bit odd uh, if you are familiar with the contents of 2 Samuel chapter 16, but I've, I've actually found a great deal of comfort from this chapter. And here's why. 2 Samuel 16 gives us this glimpse of how God is at work in the world. And maybe more specifically than that, it gives us a glimpse of how God is at work in the world, specifically in your life, even, or maybe even especially, when you feel like God is nowhere to be found, when God is distant. And the thread that ties this entire chapter together this morning is this theme that we've seen as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel uh, a year or two ago, and then now 2 Samuel as we've been working our way through this book. And it's this word, providence. Providence. And this is a really important word, one that we've defined before, but it's so important that I want to define it again this morning. We've referred to providence as God's purposeful sovereignty. In other words, when we talk about providence, we, we are talking about this conviction that God is completely and utterly in control of all things. That's what sovereignty means, that God is in charge, that he rules over everything, that there is nothing outside of his rule, that nothing catches him off guard. There's never a moment in your life when God throws up his hands in exasperation and says, I, I did not see that coming. That's sovereignty. But it's more than just sovereignty. When we talk about providence, we're, we're reminded that not just that God reigns over all, but this declaration that God has a purpose in everything that he decides, everything that he orchestrates. God is not just arbitrarily ruling over the world, over the universe, but his rule is moving toward a specific aim, a specific purpose. And we might say, well, what exactly is that purpose? Well, Paul gives us the answer, sheds light on this in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28, a verse we might be well familiar with. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I'll be honest, I think this verse is repeated so frequently that, that sometimes we lose its weight and, and its significance because Paul is making an astonishing claim that if you are in Christ Jesus, that's what he means when he says those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, that if you are in Christ Jesus, then every single thing that comes your way is for your good. 
That's an astonishing claim. That every single thing that you experience, whether it is good and plenty or pain and suffering and loss, God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty means that he has an end in mind. And that end is your good. And when we hear that, our, our response might be, and it's okay if this is our response, we're, we're just like, how, how can that be? How can it be that every single thing that comes my way, even when I experience great evil, how can that turn out for good? And that's why I'm so thankful for this morning's passage, because it gives us a glimpse of what this looks like in David's life. As David is experiencing great evil, as his life seems to be falling apart. More specifically, our text looks at four encounters, each that provides us with a slightly different picture of God's providence, of how God is at work in the world, moving things, working things for the good of his people. These four pictures of providence give us, they fill out this understanding of what this looks like in our lives and should give us confidence that God is doing the same thing in our lives as well. Now, as we work our way through this text, I hope one thing is abundantly clear for each and every one of us, and it is simply this. God is steadfastly committed to work for your good, even in your suffering. God is steadfastly committed to work for your good, even in your suffering. That's the heart of 2 Samuel chapter 16. Someone asks you, what's the purpose or what, what's the point of 2 Samuel 16? You have the answer. God is steadfastly committed to work for your good, even in your suffering. That's not just true when your life is good. It is also true when life crumbles around you. If you've turned to Jesus, then God is steadfastly committed to work for your good, even in the midst of suffering. And we would say from the context of 2 Samuel 16, even when that suffering is the result of your own sin, God is steadfastly committed to work for your good. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 16, looking at these four encounters. But before we do that, let's pause and pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us, your people, this morning. I pray that you would accomplish your purposes through this text. God, that you would instill within each of us a confidence in your commitment to the good of your children, even when it seems as though our lives declare the opposite. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the first encounter in this chapter focuses on David and Ziba in verses 1 through 4. Just a, a side note as we jump into this, there's a lot of fun names in this one, so let's see if I can make it through them without stumbling. David and Ziba, that's our first one. Now let me remind us of the scene. King David's son Absalom has declared himself the rival king. Now he's marching to Jerusalem with the purpose, the intent to kill his father and to take over the kingdom. And in light of this, David flees Jerusalem. He runs to the east, and that's where our text picks up in verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. 
Let's stop there. David's decision to abandon Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 15 came without any notice. And, and his men probably would have gathered as much as they could as they were leaving, but the priority was to escape with their lives. They had no idea how long they had before Absalom arrived. So they're not focused on gathering enough supplies to make it out. And yet here they are, they're about two miles from Jerusalem, and this man named Ziba comes to David and his servants with food and drink. And maybe you remember 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we met Ziba the first time. Ziba used to be a servant of King Saul, and yet after Saul's death, he continued to serve as the manager of Saul's large estate. What we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that as David ascended to the throne, all that belonged to the previous king would have been his. So functionally, David acquired Saul's estate. But David was incredibly benevolent back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He, he hunts down Saul's, one of Saul's final descendants, his grandson, grandson Mephibosheth, and yet rather than putting this rival to the throne to death, David showers blessing on him. He gives him everything that once belonged to his grandfather. He makes sure that he will receive all the proceeds from his estate, setting him up and his family up for life. And then he essentially welcomes Mephibosheth into his family, adopting him as his own son. So in one sense, when we see that Ziba is coming to give these things to David, it makes good sense. After all, David met Mephibosheth in his time of need, and now we see Ziba coming, and we think, okay, well, maybe Mephibosheth is doing the same thing to David, right? And that's the heart of David's question in verse 2. We read this, and the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Now, David's question might surprise us here. After all, beggars can't be choosers. Why, why would you turn this away? When we read this question, maybe it's natural for us, at least this is the way I read it, to put the emphasis on the word why. And we interpret David's question as saying, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? But the emphasis should actually be put on the word you. Instead of, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? The focus is instead, why are you doing this? And not Mephibosheth. Why is Mephibosheth not the one bringing this? And now we might remember from 2 Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth is crippled. He's unable to walk. So in one sense, it makes perfect sense that Ziba is the one bringing the supplies. But David has gone through a ton of betrayal to this point, and so he's asking Ziba to be very frank, very blunt with him. Are you doing this of your own accord or under Mephibosheth's orders? Verse 2 again. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Notice Ziba dodges the question. He doesn't answer David's question of who is behind this. Instead, he focuses on the benefit David will receive from these supplies. And so David presses him on the source of this gift with this question at the beginning of verse 3. Is this gift from you, or is it from Mephibosheth? Verse 3 again. And the king said, Where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. 
And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Ziba claims that Mephibosheth has remained in Jerusalem, hoping that the turmoil between Absalom and David will mean that he can take the throne of his grandfather, Saul. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Ziba is lying, but it's strongly implied, especially when we see the rest of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Now, it's not a great lie. Mephibosheth probably was still in Jerusalem because he was unable to flee. He's unable to walk. And yet, Mephibosheth is not delusional enough to think that he will benefit from Absalom's takeover. After all, the groundswell of support against David at this point is for Absalom, not for Mephibosheth. Now, David, maybe he's too focused on fleeing. He doesn't second-guess Ziba here. He takes Ziba at his word. He actually gives Mephibosheth's entire inheritance to Ziba. And now, this is significant, it's only now that Ziba bows down before David. It's a not-so-subtle glance at, at what kind of person Ziba truly is. He won't bow before the king until he gets what he wants from the king. Now, as I said earlier, we'll continue this story in a couple weeks when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 19. But right now, let's just consider what this reveals to us about God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty. And here's what we see. The lesson of these first few verses is simply this. You can be confident that God will supply your needs. That's it. God will supply your needs. You can be confident of that. Now, I would not at all be surprised if Mephibosheth had actually ordered Ziba to bring this gift to David, and it was only as he was outside of Mephibosheth's earshot that Ziba claims the gift was all his idea. That's that's speculation. That's not in the text. But I would not be surprised if that's what took place. Even if I'm wrong, we will soon see that Mephibosheth clearly has no problem with David using his goods in a time of need. So here we see God's provision or providence through his provision. Now, even though the source is self-centered, even though it's evil, even though David is deceived, later he finds himself in this complex web that is difficult to get out of, of who's right, who's wrong, how does he backtrack on what he's already promised, don't miss the heart here. God meets David's needs. God cares for David. God takes care of David. And God will do the same thing for you when you find yourself in need as well. Now, that's not to say that God is going to meet your needs exactly the way you want. He might not do it the way you prefer, I'm sure David would have preferred that God would have met his needs by allowing him to stay in Jerusalem. But we cannot deny that God takes care of David. And God will take care of you too. You can be confident that God will supply your needs, even in and especially in hardship. Let's continue working through our text. The second encounter of this text is between David and Shimei. Verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, 
there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So David is continuing out of Jerusalem. He reaches this village a couple miles away, and a distant relative of King Saul, the previous king, meets him and begins to curse him and throw rocks at him. And now, it doesn't seem as though David is in any sort of physical danger, but this rock throwing is certainly an insult. And in verses 7 and 8, we're given the reason why Shimei is cursing David, why he's throwing rocks at him. He says that David is a man of blood, and he is a worthless or a, a, a wicked man. And if we read that declaration that David is a man of blood, he is a worthless and wicked man, and we read that in light of David's adultery with Bathsheba, and the fact that he murdered Bathsheba's husband Uriah as a cover-up for his act, we might say, well, you know what, Shemei, you have a point. David is a man of blood. He is acting like a worthless man. But in verse 8, we see Shimei clarify that he's, he's not talking about Bathsheba. He's not talking about Uriah. He's talking about David and, and how he ascended to the throne. He claims that David is guilty of murder and wickedness because Saul is no longer on the throne. Shimei believes that the only way David would have become the king is by trickery and deceit and murder and Absalom's rebellion against David is all the proof that Shimei needs that God is judging David for his actions. Let's continue. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Abishai's a nice guy. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall I say, who then shall say, why have you done so? So at some point, Abishai, David's nephew, one of the military commanders of Israel has had enough. He asks David, hey, can I go and kill Shimei? That'll put an end to this constant cursing. This actually appears to be Abishai's solution to everything. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 26, he asks David, hey, can I go sneak over to Saul's camp and kill him in his sleep so you can be the king? And David refused back then, and David refuses now too. Now there's some irony there. There's, there's supposed to be this connection between 1 Samuel 26 and what we read right here. Because Shimei is claiming that David is guilty of conspiring against Saul, and Abishai's solution to the problem is to put Shimei to death. Now, David refuses to let, Shimei, or refuses to let Abishai kill Shimei just as he refused to let Abishai kill Saul. 
The text is underscoring that, that David is innocent of the slander that he is receiving from Shimei. These accusations are false, and yet David says he's going to endure the cursing. Why? Verses 10 through 12 are very important. Let's read them. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? For he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. I'm astonished by David's response here because it shows that he interprets his life through the lens of the word of God. At the forefront of David's mind as Shimei is, is hurling these, these curses at him is 2 Samuel chapter 12. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God confronts David through Nathan the prophet, and we read this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And David makes a connection between his son Absalom rebelling against him out of his own house and what is taking place from Shimei. And he realizes that part of his current suffering might be connected to that moment. That the cursing of Shimei here might be one of the ways that God is bringing about his word against David. And because of that, David is unwilling to, to silence Shimei in case that means he is opposing God. Now, that doesn't mean that David would, would endure, that, that David thinks that this accusation is true. It means that David would rather endure false accusation and slander rather than potentially finding himself standing against God and his plan. And so in the face of false accusation, in the face of slander, David places his hope not in his ability to get even, not in his ability to silence his enemy, but in the Lord himself. Notice verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, there's some debate on what this verse actually says. Most of our English translations don't follow the original Hebrew, actually. They follow a Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint, and that's because it's easier to understand. So this Greek translation, written a, hundred years, a couple hundred years after the original, says, it may be that the Lord will look at the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. But the original Hebrew says something different. It says this, It may be that the Lord will look on my sin and that the Lord will repay me with goodness instead of the cursing of today. Slightly different, 
but they give us a different place where David puts his hope. Where does David put his hope? Our English translations suggest that David's hope is that the Lord will look at the wrong he is experiencing from the hands of Shimei and will vindicate him. Look at the wrong that Shimei is doing to me and vindicate me one day. Give me good instead of this cursing God. And and this lines up with a number of Psalms. David is regularly praying that God would be the one who vindicates his name. That David is not going to take action, but he's going to wait for God to be the one who clears his name. So you look at, at Psalm 26, Psalm 35, Psalm 54, all of these, David is saying, here's the wrongs I'm experiencing, God. I trust you to make it right. If we look at the Hebrew, though, which I think is a better translation, it's more accurate here. According to the Hebrew, David's hope is not just that God will vindicate him from this slander of Shimei, but astonishingly that God will look on David's sin and will repay David and his sin with goodness. In other words, David's great hope is not primarily that he will one day receive justice for the wrong that he has done, that God sees this wrong and he's going to fix it. Instead, David's great hope is that he will receive grace, that David has done wrong. And yet one day God is going to show him goodness, that God is going to be kind to him. He's going to pass over his sin. Remember, David is interpreting his events through the lens of the word of God, which says that his suffering is a result of his sin. And yet far from falling into despair, David knows that God is gracious. He knows that God is merciful. And so he cries out to God to show him grace and to show him mercy in spite of his sin. David's great hope is that in spite of all of the wrong that he has done, God is still good. And you know what? That's a vital lesson when it comes to providence. At the beginning of this encounter, we see the temptation to interpret our present circumstances as God's verdict upon us. That's what Shimei does here. If we suffer in this life, the temptation is to conclude, I have done something wrong. And if we experience ease, the temptation is to conclude, God is pleased with me. And that's what, that's what Shimei does. He looks at the events of David's life. He looks at the suffering that David is experiencing from the hands of Absalom, and he concludes, God is paying David back for the wrong that he has done. But this isn't the way that God works. And it isn't David's greatest hope. God is absolutely just. He absolutely will address our rebellion, our failures, our sin. But present circumstances are not necessarily a declaration of validation or condemnation from God. What you are experiencing is not necessarily a condemnation from God or a validation from him that you are doing everything right in his eyes. This is a vital lesson for us when it comes to providence. 
It's simply this. When you suffer, you can wait on the Lord out of a hope in his goodness. You can wait on God in the midst of your suffering out of a hope for his goodness and in his goodness. David endures scorn and humiliation and, yes, the consequences of his own sin. But even all that cannot shake his confidence in the goodness of God. When you suffer, you can wait on the Lord out of a hope in his goodness. And it's in that hope that David endures the cursing of Shimei as he escapes. Verse 13, so David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. At this point, the chapter transitions away from David's escape from Jerusalem, and now it looks back at Jerusalem and what takes place. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 15, we saw Hushai, David's friend, enters Jerusalem in the nick of time, arriving just as Absalom is arriving. Remember Hushai's mission that he was given by David. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. So we see here, Hushai, David's friend, is in this perilous position. He is sent by David to undermine the son, or his son's chief counselor. And we're left wondering, well, well, how exactly will all of this turn out? That's our third encounter between Absalom and Hushai. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So Absalom arrives in Jerusalem. Hushai is there waiting for him. Hushai greets Absalom with the cry, long live the king, over and over. Now, one thing that we're going to notice here is that every single thing that Hushai says could be a declaration of his service to and his allegiance to David, or it could be interpreted as a declaration of his allegiance to Absalom. That's That's intentional. That's exactly what he means to do. His, his plan is built on this ambiguity. So when he greets Absalom, he doesn't specify who he's talking about when he says, long live the king. Now, one of the things that we've seen when we've been looking at Absalom is he's incredibly vain. He's incredibly arrogant. And so he naturally interprets Hushai's declaration here as a reference to himself. Well, here's someone who's saying, long live me even though we know Hushai is referring to David in, in this rejection of, de defiance of Absalom. And yet at the same time that Absalom interprets this as a reference to himself, he also is a little bit concerned. He sees Hushai and this, this sudden change of allegiance, and he's, he's wary of it. 
If this is what Hushai is going to do to his friend David, who, who's to say that he's not going to do something exactly the same to Absalom when the time is convenient? And so he questions Hushai, and Hushai responds. Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be before his son? And as I served before your father, so I will serve before you. So Hushai starts by essentially saying, I'm going to serve the one that God and the people of Israel have chosen. And of course, he has in mind David. David, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, was anointed officially by all the, all the tribes of Israel. He was chosen by God all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And yet David looks at his groundswell of his support, and he arrogantly assumes that his popularity with the people means that he is the Lord's choice as well, and Hushai is talking about him. Hushai is saying, I am David's man, and I will always be David's man. But Absalom foolishly deludes himself into thinking that Hushai is swearing allegiance him. Now in verse 19, Hushai asks this rhetorical question. He says, whom shall I serve? He, of course, has David in mind, but Absalom, again, thinks he is referring to Absalom. And he follows this with another rhetorical question. Notice that I added the word before to our English translation. It's, it's in the Hebrew there. It's missing in the ESV. Hushai is saying, I have always served David, and I will continue to serve David in the presence of his son, before his son. But Absalom, again, interprets this as saying, just as I have served David, now I'm going to serve you. And he reiterates that in his last sentence. Now, we're not told Absalom's response here, but it's clear from silence and from the next chapter that, that Absalom buys it. He falls for it. And it's tempting when we get to this moment in the text at the end of verse 19 to just marvel at Hushai's dazzling intellect. He plays Absalom for a fool. He declares his allegiance to David and he sets himself up to destroy the coup from the inside. And, and to be clear, Hushai's plan here is masterful. But... We must not read his success here without also considering the words that will come in the following chapter. So in the following chapter, we read this. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel through Hushai so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That verse is the lens through which we must understand this encounter between Absalom and Hushai. God uses Hushai and his ingenuity, and his faithfulness to accomplish his purposes, namely his purposes for the good of David and the end of Absalom's coup. This is the third picture of providence that we capture from this chapter. God uses the faithfulness of his people to accomplish his good purposes. God uses the faithfulness of his people to accomplish his good purposes. Hushai here is a paragon of faithfulness to King David. And by extension, he is a paragon of faithfulness to the Lord. And God uses his gifts 
to accomplish his purposes for David's sake. Now, here's the crucial reality that we have to grasp as we are thinking about God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty. Everything that God has entrusted to you has been given to you so that he might use you as a conduit of grace and good in the lives of the people who are around you. God has created you. Every single atom that makes up your body has been shaped with intention. You are saturated with purpose. And that purpose is a part of God's providential care for his people. Maybe you are like Hushai, and you are the smartest person in the room. God has given you that amazing intellect for the good of his people. Maybe like Hushai, you have a golden tongue. You can persuade anyone of anything. God has given you that ability to speak for his plans and his purposes. Maybe God has placed you in a position to influence others just like Hushai. God has placed you there to accomplish his plans and purposes for the good of his people. Maybe God has blessed you with wealth. He has done that for you to use it for his sake, for his plans, for his purposes. Maybe God has blessed you with margin in time and, and, and ability. And he's given you that so that you can be a blessing to others around you. God uses the faithfulness of his people to accomplish his good purposes. He has equipped you to be a conduit of his grace and goodness for others. God knows exactly what he is doing, and he wants to use you as a part of that plan. That leads us to the final encounter. And this one is between Absalom and Ahithophel. We see that Hushai has won his way into Absalom's presence, and he has now been dismissed. Absalom asks his chief counselor, now that he is in Jerusalem, what he should do next. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Ahithophel's advice here is horrific, but it is effective. Last week, I said that Absalom's coup at Hebron was the crossing of the Rubicon, this, this moment where there was no turning back. I was wrong. That is this moment. To this point, there is still a chance, however slim it might be, there is still a chance for Absalom to be reconciled to his father. No blood has been shed. Maybe there is hope that they can be restored. But if Absalom does what Ahithophel says, there is no turning back. 
reconciliation will no longer be possible. And this is exactly what Ahithophel has in mind here when he says that Absalom will make himself a stench to his father. More than that, he actually says, you know what, this is going to strengthen the hands. This is going to motivate those who are serving you as a part of this coup because now their only hope moving forward is its success. They'll be motivated to continue to serve you. There's no chance for them to return to normalcy if you do this. Now, it was common practice in ancient kingdoms for a, a new king to sleep with the wives of the previous king as a declaration of his power. So Ahithophel's advice here, it's, it's relatively standard for that day. That doesn't excuse it. That doesn't make it any less horrific. It's a violation of God's law, and the penalty for this is death. But as we've seen from Absalom, why would that stop him from doing what he wants? Continue. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So Absalom follows Ahithophel's advice. A tent is placed on the roof of David's palace. He takes all of David's wives that are still in Jerusalem and sleeps with them one by one. And everyone knows what is happening. And in Absalom's evil, he does exactly what God had said would happen. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. God declared that this would happen because David slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband to cover it up. And that's exactly what happens. What's more, it takes place on the very same roof that this all started. When David lusted after Bathsheba, and it's a sobering, horrific way to end the chapter. And we're left wondering, what, what can we learn of God's providence from such evil? And the answer is clear. God uses the evil desires of evil men to accomplish his good purposes. God uses the evil desires of evil men to accomplish his good purposes. That's what we have to make clear here. What Absalom did, what Ahithophel said is exactly what they wanted to do. They were not coerced into doing something against their will. But the mystery of God's providence is that God can and God does use evil desires to accomplish evil for the establishment of his purposes. Here we see very clearly that God uses the evil desires of evil men to accomplish his good purposes. And we might be left wondering, how is this good? How does this accomplish good? The violation of these women, how is that a part of the good purposes of God? If anything, this is a fulfillment of judgment upon David rather than goodness. 
that David was asking for earlier in this chapter. We could say anything God decrees is good. And that's true. But I'll confess that that's a less than satisfying answer for me. It is true. It is good. It is right. But how specifically? We're left wondering and asking, how does this fulfillment of, of judgment upon David accomplish good, God's good purpose and, and maybe even specifically good in David's life? I don't know the answer to that. Well, let me just propose two suggestions. The first one is this. It could be that God uses this evil in David's life to reveal the sobering and devastating nature of sin. David comes face to face with the consequences of his sin, and as such, it becomes even more apparent to David as how horrific sin is. This is a painful realization, but it's a good realization because anytime our thinking increasingly aligns with God's perspective, it is a good thing. But second, and I'd say more importantly, the way God uses the evil of Absalom and Ahithophel for good in David's life is an echo of what is to come in the Lord Jesus. This is how God often operates in the world. Yes, he uses the faithfulness of his people to accomplish his good purposes like we saw with Hushai, but he also uses the evil desires of evil men to accomplish his good purpose as well, most notably at the cross. Notice Peter's words, and we've referred to this a number of times as we talk about providence. But notice Peter's words concerning the crucifixion of Jesus and how God uses the evil desires of evil men and women to accomplish the greatest good. He says this at Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we read that verse and we say, well, how is Jesus killed? Well, Peter says that Jesus was crucified by the crowds. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. There's this very real evil desire from the Jewish people, from the Romans, to put Jesus to death. They wanted to do it. They delighted in doing it. And yet, Peter also says, this is a part of the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. It's a part of God's plan. People did what they wanted, but because God is sovereign, he used these evil desires and actions to accomplish the greatest good in human history and in the entire cosmos. It's in this hope that God can take evil and make it good that was accomplished a millennia after the time of David that enables David to cry out that God would see his sin and would repay him with goodness. As David is enduring the curse of Shimei, the sobering reality is that while David did not deserve Shimei's cursing, he certainly deserved the curse of his actions. He deserved to be cursed in fact, the, the cursing of Shimei was far better than the curse that David deserved. The, the astonishing thing from scriptures is not just that, that God writes the wrongs that we've experienced, but that in Christ, we can experience good instead of the curse that we deserve. Paul puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Samuel 16 is a beautiful chapter of hope. Because even in the despair, even in the suffering, even in the affliction of evil men, it's a chapter of hope because it gives us this realization of what is ours in Christ Jesus because he bore the curse that each of us deserved. As we consider these four pictures of God's providence, we're left with this confidence that that God is at work in our lives for good, just as he was at work in David's life. The way that God might be at work in your life might look differently, but we can be confident that God remains at work on our behalf for our good. God is steadfastly committed to work for your good, even in your suffering. And we might not fully grasp how, but we can be confident that God is at work for our good. Second Samuel 16 testifies to that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and you do good. And you and your infinite wisdom and power can make all things and use them for the good of your people. Lord, help us to trust in that, to have our eyes open to the reality of your sovereignty, the reality of your purposes and plans, to have our eyes open to how you might use us for the good of those who are around us, and to trust that even when we don't know how you're working, you are working for good. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.